0: Welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with a movie that really impressed 2022 audiences. Maybe not us. Maybe not us. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone really seemed to like it. (laughs) Yes, this is Smile from, again, 2022. So I didn't really hear much about this movie, with the exception of conversations between Shay and me to do an episode on it. But I know, Shay, you saw this prior to recording.
1: I did. I mean, I heard a lot of things about it. And I'm always a little hesitant when people say that it's the scariest thing they've ever seen. (laughs) And it was getting a lot of press. Like, it was getting a lot of people really impressed by it, which made me more scared to see it. And I waited until it hit streaming, and I just remember being underwhelmed. It's not bad. I think that there's a lot of cool talking points to this movie. I appreciate what it's set out to do. In terms of the actual scare factor, I'm not quite sure. I think it causes more conversation and, like, implements different elements of, you know, quote-unquote elevated horror well. But I don't know that it is as horrific as some people found it to be.
0: Yeah, I, for one, thought it was very scary. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely, for me... A big part of the fear factor was some of the emotionally loaded moments that were very uncomfortable to sit through. I think that kind of emotional burden that this movie puts on the viewer is a big part of its appeal or like a big part of the emotional aspect of watching this film. But I'm excited to talk about it with you because I'm wondering if this is going to be one of those instances where at the end I feel like I have a better understanding of the movie or more appreciation for certain choices. But to be candid, where I am now is like, I think I have a little bit of an emotional hangover from this movie. And I watched it a couple days ago. I think I still feel it. (laughs) And I can
1: already kind of anticipate some people being like, well, if you're not as impacted by mental health or if you don't have those kinds of struggles, then this movie wasn't for you or you don't get it, like those types of things. But I also argue that we have covered a lot of movies that have tackled grief, trauma, mm-hmm. insinuations about mental health that I just think did it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. And that can be my opinion. I can be wrong, like all of those types of things. Again, I do appreciate a lot of scenes in this movie. I just don't know that it was brought together in a conclusive way. And maybe that is the point, but it wasn't satisfying mm-hmm. for me. And not because there's not a happy ending, like, (laughs) That's not. I don't need a happy ending. It's more so, did it actually set out what it was trying to do? I don't know. But we'll get into it and find out along the
0: way. Let's do just that. So first, we'll start with our ladies. Our leading lady is Sosi Bacon as Rose Cotter. She's an American actress. She's actually Kevin Bacon's daughter. And we know him on this podcast from the original Friday the 13th. She's in a bunch of TV and film, including the Scream TV series, 13 Reasons Why, and Mare of Easttown, which I knew I recognized her from somewhere, and I think, A, she looks like Kevin Bacon, and B, I did watch Mare of Easttown. Next, we have Robin Weigert as Dr. Madeline Northcott. She is an American actress best known for her roles in the series Deadwood, Sons of Anarchy, and Big Little Lies. We have Caitlin Stacey as Laura Weaver. She is an Australian actress. I know her from her portrayal of Kenna in the series Rain, which is about Mary, Queen of Scots. And she's in a bunch of other TV shows and movies. We have Jillian Zinser as Holly. She is an American actress best known for her role on the teen drama series 90210. Judy Reyes as Victoria Munoz. She is an American actress, model, and producer. And I love this woman. She's best known for her role as Carla on the series Scrubs. I'm sure I'd recognize her if I watched an episode. Scrubs is the first TV show that I ever remember, like, loving except for Scooby-Doo, which probably was first. Scrubs was second. (laughs) So it was really nice to see her again, especially because in that show, she plays such a comedic role. So I think sometimes when you have like positive associations with actors, when they appear in horror movies, it kind of lightens the mood. And finally, we have Dora Kiss as mom. (laughs) She is a Hungarian-American actress, best known for her role in this film. Getting into some pre-plot trivia from IMDb, this film was originally titled Something's Wrong with Rose before being renamed Smile. Also, the smiles in the film are all natural and they are not enhanced with visual effects. The studio even asked if they could be tweaked, but Parker Finn, the director, stuck to his guns as he wanted them to be grounded in their creepiness. find that a little unbelievable. Really? But impressive, I guess, if it happened that way. I'm sure they were coached on their posturing and their angles as they smiled. But yeah, that's what IMDb said. I mean, we know, of course, take it with a grain of salt, maybe there's something else at play here, but I think I do believe that. Next, Paramount originally planned for the film, which had a low budget of 17 million, to be streaming only on Paramount Plus, but the film was screened for test audiences and scored so much higher than anticipated that it prompted Paramount to give the film a theatrical release in the United States. It grossed 22 million over its first opening weekend. And finally, Smile received mostly positive reviews from critics who praised the visuals, themes, and Bacon's performance but criticized its jump scares and plot similarities to It Follows from 2014 and The Ring from 2002.
1: Which I'm just so excited that It Follows is getting a sequel. They follow. Yes! So excited. I'm excited and I'm scared. I also appreciated the marketing techniques for these movies. Did you hear about that,
0: see about that? Yes. So apparently, what was it, a Major League Baseball game? Some of the actors in this movie appeared and smiled into the camera. Yeah, I don't even know that they were the actors
1: or if they were just plants. I don't
0: know. But like, they were wearing a t
1: shirt with the name of the movie on it. And they were smiling unnaturally just in the background. And obviously that memeified it, which kind of helped with the marketing of the movie, which I think is smart.
0: That reminds me of It with the red balloon. Yes. And I remember the, you know, the fall where there were clowns running around all over the place (laughs) and people were so scared. What a time to be alive. (laughs) It was. And I do remember one time driving. I was student teaching at the time and I was driving to my placement and I remember seeing a red balloon tied to a sewer grate. It was like 530 in the morning and being very freaked out. These marketing techniques that we've kind of talked about in a couple different movies, I'm thinking also of The Blair Witch Project, yeah, right? It is, yeah. it is cool hearing about intentional marketing schemes that go into incentivizing viewers to watch it. And for
1: those who have seen some of the like later 2010s horror movies, people also relate this a lot to a movie called Truth or Dare with Lucy Hale in it. I've been wanting to cover it for a while. It's not great, but I think it's
0: fun. I know we've talked about that movie before. I think along the lines of... What's that movie with...
1: Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about, right? Not right Ready or Not. um, um,
0: Was it Britney Snow? Yes, Britney Snow is in it. Would You Rather. Would You Rather!
1: Yes, I think I brought it up when we were talking about Would You Rather, about like party games turning into horror movies and all these types of things. But part of the movie Truth or Dare is that there is a demon that invests itself in the game. And the person that is giving you the prompts for truth or dare is this malevolent force. And you can tell that it is the malevolent force when the person who is talking to you, which is a real person in your life, smiles really large and unnaturally. We're talking about like Snapchat effect smile where it looks kooky and really scary. It reminded me of this because that movie came out in, I think, 2018. And granted, I think this movie tries to take itself a little bit more seriously than Truth or Dare does. I mean, Truth or Dare is just kind of, okay, everyone's dying. There's, there's, <laughs> there's crazy ways people are dying. It's interesting. But also the plot point of how that ends and how this ends are similar. Again, similar to how the ring ends in mm. like, that ultimatum. They are all connected in that way, but I do like Truth or Dare. Okay, well, I'm
0: excited for us to cover that one day. So let's get into the plot.
1: All right. So we open with a woman laying in bed. We first think that her eyes are just open, but then after some prolonged period of time, we realize that this woman is dead. There is a blank stare, some creepy lullaby music as the camera pans away from her to reveal a bunch of food and pills on the ground. It looks like she may have vomited. There's lots of pill bottles scattered among happy family photos until finally the camera lands on a young girl staring at her from an open doorway looking very terrified. She looks to be around seven, eight years old. And we presume that this woman from
0: the family photos is this girl's mother. Yes. Cut to the present. We have Dr. Rose Cotter, which we can also assume, based on the cinematography, is the grown-up version of the little girl we just saw. And Rose has been dreaming of this memory. It seems like she wakes up in her office after having this dream of this experience from her girlhood, and she takes a call with her patient, Carl. So she heads to the room where Carl is. She's having a conversation with him, and Carl, according to her, seems to be having some kind of manic episode. He's whispering to himself. He seems very paranoid about death being close by. And she tries to tell him what you're feeling can't hurt you, it's okay. And this scene serves to inform us of Rose's profession. She is a psychiatrist. She works at a hospital. It also is setting up this idea of mental health being something, I don't want to say that isn't real, but something that physically cannot harm you as like a separate entity, which is going to come into play.
1: So she moves about the hospital after treating Carl and tells a nurse that she's admitting him for observation, but that he's low risk. They just need somebody to check on him every couple of hours. And the nurse reports to her that Dr. Desai is looking for her, who we assume to be her boss. So after we see an aerial panning shot of an ambulance arriving with a very distressed woman screaming in the emergency room entrance, she's meeting with Dr. Desai through a window. So there's some cool shots here. He questions her about a patient that she sent to treatment the previous week with no insurance, and she starts arguing how the board should be more invested in the patients than the money they can give. So again, kind of outlining just the state of the healthcare system in the United States currently. Then he, like, looks at her and notices that she's tired, and he questions if she's been here since the late shift last night. So Rose is a bit of an overworker, and we see her readying herself to go home. She puts her coat on, she closes her office door, but as she closes
0: her office door, she hears her phone ringing, and she can't help herself, and she picks it up. She responds to an emergency call, essentially. She is asked to go into a session with a graduate student named Laura Weaver, and we can assume that Laura was the woman we just saw being taken from the ambulance into the hospital. She was admitted after a couple days prior witnessing her professor bludgeon himself to death with a hammer. Now, this woman, Laura, seems to be having her own nervous breakdown. So Rose is in the room with her one-on-one. I mean, now we saw her in a scene with Carl. We're seeing her with Laura. We know she's very passionate about her work. She has a very humanist approach to this profession. She seems like she's good at what she does, and she takes a lot of pride in what she does. She moves through some standard questions, but Laura then claims that she's being haunted by some malevolent presence whose curse has consumed her life, but no one else can see this entity, only Laura can. She says, quote, I'm seeing something, something no one else can see. It looks like people, but it's not a person. And she explains that when she sees it, it smiles at her, quote, the worst smile she's ever seen in her life. So, in this conversation, it's clear that Rose thinks Laura is having some kind of hallucinations. Laura is saying that she is about to die and is taking these quote unquote hallucinations very seriously. And soon she starts to, for lack of a better term, freak out. She starts to scream. We can tell that her level of mental distress has increased rapidly. She is writhing in pain all of a sudden as she falls to the floor. Rose goes to the phone on the wall to call for help. But when she turns around, Laura has moved from her spot on the floor to a different side of the room, standing up, smiling ominously at Rose. She picks up a piece of ceramic, what is it, a vase or a plate from the floor that she had previously knocked over?
1: Yeah, she knocked over a flower pot Yes. Yeah. it's a piece of
0: the pot. She takes a piece of the ceramic and as she stands, unflinchingly smiling, cuts from the side of her face, down her jawbone, across her neck, and back up again in a very, I want to say, exaggerated smile motion. But instead of on her face, it's like literally her neck killing herself in front of Rose. I also liked that
1: in this scene when we see Lara talking and we see Rose talking, we never see them in the same shot together. So like when Lara's talking, the camera is right on her face and it's looking at her. And when Rose is talking, it's just on Rose. We don't really see them speaking with each other after a certain point. I think it starts that way. But then once they're sitting across from each other, it goes from one shot to the next shot. And to me, that's showing how there's no objective view to what is happening. Because we see Lara see something which causes her to fall out of her chair, knock this plant over, and cower in the corner again. But obviously, Rose doesn't see it.
0: Mm, so what's that saying? like, Do you think that it's trying to show how Rose's judgment might be clouded by her own personal opinions? Is it questioning already Rose as a narrator? Well, I think it's
1: just trying to show that there's no way that Rose could see what Laura is seeing. Yeah,
0: well... She'll start seeing it. Well,
1: exactly. (laughs) I think it's meant to try to not discredit Lara because it's one thing if they were in the same shot and we see Rose seeing nothing but Lara is seeing something, it's easier to get on Rose's side because she's our principal character. Right. But Lara, because we're not seeing what she's seeing, we're just seeing her react. We don't know what she's reacting to. That is such a good point. Where with Carl, he wasn't reacting to an external stimulus. He was having a very internal monologue of, I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. Nothing matters. She's dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. And he's just in this panic mind loop where Laura is seeing something. Yeah. But because we're not seeing Laura's perspective, we're just seeing
0: her reaction. We don't know that what she's seeing is there or not. Mm-hmm. This is not a standard event for the workday. Cut to Rose being interviewed by two detectives. They're asking her questions about the nature of Laura's delusions. Who are the detectives? Well, we don't know this yet, who they are to Rose. But one of the detectives is played by Kyle Gallner. I love this, man. <laughs> we you know him from the podcast from Jennifer's Body and a haunting in Connecticut that we covered just this past October. And look, I have to say <laughs> I have to say Shay is no stranger about how she feels about Mr. Kyle Golner, but for me, I never had the teen girl craze for Mr. Kyle Golner. I missed that because I was not watching these movies because I was too scared, but look, as an adult looking at Mr. adult Kyle Golner, I felt a little something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's a big cutie and I especially like his character. His character proves to be super brave <laughs> and sensitive. He has a very clean and intentional apartment with like a soap dish on the sink, which I think is really impressive. <laughs> Lots of framed art. So I really was a big fan of Kyle in this movie, which I had appreciated before from an outsider's perspective. But now I appreciate some of the craziness that Shay has had. (laughs) Because I have experienced it myself in this movie. And I'm as gay as the day
1: is long. But there's just something about this man that I, I love him. I love everything he's in. I think he's great. This movie needs more of him, in my opinion. I agree. There's not enough of him. And his name is Joel. We kind of see that Rose and Joel might know each other because as Rose is sitting in this interrogation room, Joel kind of gives an awkward, hey, wave. So we're like, okay, what's up with that? <laughs> and then we have Detective Buckley, who's a fuckass, and Joel questioning Rose about the situation with Lara. They ask if she's been a patient before or if what she was experiencing was typical of what she normally sees. And Rose is like, I work in an emergency psych unit. But, like There's no such thing as typical. And then Detective Buckley goes, but she was a nutcase, yeah? This begins some throwaway dialogue that we understand that the movie is trying to be aware of the fact that some people are very dismissive to mental health, period in my opinion, it's a little sloppily done. And it's not the first or last instance we're going to get of it. It's one thing if it's one throwaway character, but it comes from a lot of different characters. Rose rebuffs the comment and Joel tries to cover for him being like, hey, we just want your opinion of Laura's mental state. Where Rose surmises that Laura could have been experiencing post-traumatic psychosis because she was having paranoid delusions. And then Rose goes on to tell them about how right before she died, she was smiling. Again, the detective goes, yeah, sounds like a fucking crazy to me. Like, it's just like, all right, yeah, a little bit too on the nose.
0: Yep. So later that night, Rose makes it home. I wrote, we get it. You saw Midsummer (laughs) Because these like upside down driving shots, I feel like I see them everywhere. Yeah, literally there are. I think I counted at least four or five camera shots from Midsummer where the camera is originally upright and then turns upside down.
1: I'm not saying that Midsummer created the shot, <laughs> but I also just think that I've seen it in horror times five since that shot did it well in Midsummer. My personal opinion. Anyway, moving on.
0: <laughs> so Rose makes it home. As she's taking off her work clothes, she notices that there is some light blood splatter on her blouse, which of course freaks her out. She jumps right into the shower. Then pours herself a glass of wine. And as she's standing in the kitchen sipping her wine, she sees in a dark corner the figure of Laura smiling start to sort of form in the darkness. And I know we've talked about that shot before. Hereditary. Yes. Like the way the camera kind of lets you, the viewer, adjust your eyes to what's in front of the actress. But before she can really make out whether or not she's actually seeing Laura, her fiance, Trevor, comes home, turns on the light for a fake out jump scare. Of course, it scares Rose. She even drops her glass on the ground as it shatters. And then they get ready for their dinner plans that they had previously scheduled with Rose's sister, Holly, and her husband, Greg. Did we talk about Mustache? Oh, my gosh. Rose has a cat named Mustache. Mustache is super cute. It's a white cat with black and brown spots. And Mustache is so sweet and cuddly. Greets her at the door. Yes! So wonderful.
1: Anyway... We find Rose at dinner zoning out as her sister, Holly, complains how she hasn't been to Pilates in weeks. (laughs) And because she has to take their kids everywhere after school, her days are just literally impossible, which obviously sounds so selfish in comparison to what Rose is dealing with Mm. day in and day out. Not to compare circumstances, but Holly just kind of sounds privileged. Rose reports that she actually can't come to her nephew's birthday party and Holly scoffs and said she needs to get out of that gross hospital and work normal people hours. Holly's husband, Greg, asserts that there are, quote unquote, plenty of crazies that would actually pay her for her time. Why become a doctor if you can't get disgustingly rich? And I'm like, this
0: writing sucks. (laughs) Yeah, it's again, really aggressively on the nose. Polly's like, well, we could just sell the house for more money. And Rose asserts, we grew up in that house.
1: So, okay, we're learning that there might be a property somewhere that's going to become important later. And Greg's like, well, why don't you just sell it for land? And Rose tells them both to shut the fuck up (laughs) as the food arrives.
0: Yeah, so dinner's a little bit tense, but they make it through it. Trevor and Rose return home and the day is over. The next day, one of the detectives from the day before, Mr. Joel, approaches Rose at work. And then this is where we learn through their conversation that Joel and Rose actually used to date. Rose immediately kind of blows him off. And really, he's just there to kind of say, I didn't realize it had to do with you. I hope it wasn't uncomfortable for you that I showed up, you know, as one of the detectives that was questioning you. Rose blows him off. But I love this moment because Nurse Wanda, who we've seen around the hospital a couple of times, watches this whole interaction and reminds Joel that she's single after Rose walks away, which I really appreciated. Me too, Wanda. Me too. (laughs) There was also this small
1: interaction between Trevor and Rose right before this scene that I wanted to talk about because it is very mundane, but I think it is like showing a character pattern in Trevor that gets called out later. So when they get home, Trevor asks if Rose is okay. And she just says, Yeah, I'm fine. And it's a throwaway moment, but I wrote, I could understand how this is showing that some people don't actually want to comfort other people. He didn't ask her an open-ended question that would give her the space to process anything. Mm. It was a yes or no that would make him feel better for asking, but make her feel bad for divulging anymore.
0: Right. Like, it's not what's happening. Like, what happened at work today? or why did you
1: tell your sister to shut the fuck up? Why did you tell your
0: sister to shut the fuck up? Right? Yeah, these actual questions that would require a conversation. That's a really good point. And that does
1: get called out later, which I do appreciate that they're planting seeds of it now. Like I said, the movie does some things well that I really like. And I think it's these casual, like, Mm -hmm. things that they do it well. But it's when they try to get so obvious that we're trying to be a thematic thing here, where it's like, you don't need to if you just do less, you know? Yeah, that's
0: such a good point, especially with Trevor's character, because I don't know if we get too many of those really on-the-nose moments with his dialogue. You're right that it's a lot of these subtle moments or, like, these subtle incompatibilities, which it makes it so hard for this couple to kind of navigate what comes next.
1: So Rose is poring over Laura's case file, which includes the context of what happened prior to her being hospitalized. So that case report states that her professor approached her wielding a claw hammer and bludgeoned himself repeatedly in the face before expiring, claiming that he was smiling at her before Mm. doing so. Meanwhile, Rose is answering a call from Holly, who half-assedly apologizes for the night before, but as soon as Rose apologizes back, Holly immediately guilt her. It's like, well, if you can't make it to your nephew's birthday party, you could at least get him a model train. Like, stupid shit like that. Yeah. But meanwhile, Rose is looking out the window and seeing a figure staring up at her from the courtyard. That is so It Follows. It's, yeah, I was about to say, it's giving It Follows in the classroom scene with the old lady. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. Did you catch this? When Rose is walking by the open doors, you get to like one patient's room and then there's a second patient's room where the mama figure is leaning over another patient before she gets to Carl's room. It oh is, my gosh. It is so blink you miss it. I, I had to rewind. did not even see it. I had to rewind it. Because literally, there's no music change. There's no anything. There's just a panning shot of watching Rose walk by these hospital rooms. One's normal. One is this very large, tall figure leaning over another person. And then the third
0: one is Carl sitting on his bed smiling. Yes. I did see Carl, but I did not see the room It was so quick. Ooh. So Rose sees Carl smiling at her. She does see this. She backtracks, looks in the room, sees Carl continuing to smile at her. She approaches him, but he starts to threaten her, saying, you're going to die. It's very intense. Rose is very scared. She calls security to restrain Carl. But when security arrives, it turns out that Carl was not antagonizing Rose. He was sleeping. And that Rose seemingly imagined his aggressive behavior. Which obviously prompts a meeting with Dr. Desai, right? Because he's like, Rose, I don't know if you saw what you really saw. I think you have some rest that you need to take, especially considering the circumstances of the last few days. So you have a week's leave to go home, rest, and then you can come back to work after that. So she gets
1: in her car to leave. She's trying to calm and steady herself. You can tell that her anxiety is building. And she stops in a store on the way home to buy her nephew the model train. And we see panning photos of people smiling on the walls. So, okay, getting pretty ominous. At home, she cracks again into the wine. As she begins to wrap the present, she seems not very happy that Trevor is working late. And, like, I can't tell if we're supposed to read her drinking as problematic. They're small amounts, and, like, we see it
0: as a pattern, obviously. I did not read it as problematic. But maybe that's, maybe I I (laughs) should (laughs) have. I was like, yeah, she's drinking some wine after a long day. (laughs) I don't know. She's also just doing the thing where she's pouring like the smallest amounts of wine. Well, the first time we see her fill a wine glass and drink it, she ends up dropping it. And then the second time we see her fill this wine glass, it's only in her hand for a short amount of time before her alarm goes off, her security alarm goes off, and she drops this other wine glass. And I wrote, another one bites the dust. Seriously.
1: I literally wrote, at least she has two from the same set now
0: and not just an awkward three. You see those in the thrift store all the time. Yes, it's so good that she's back to having an even set of wine glasses. It's really the way it should be. (laughs) But anyway, drops another glass. She goes to reset the system, but when she comes back, she notices that the back door is slightly ajar. But before she can approach the door and investigate, an operator from the security service calls Rose. But then the woman on the other end of the call starts to taunt Rose, asking if she's home alone, are you sure? Look behind you.
1: When I tell you my power went out when the scene was N-uh. going on, N-uh. oh my god, N-uh. I'm, N-uh. This so N-uh. N-uh. I'm so serious, I'm so fucking for real, I'm so fucking for real, I'm so fucking for real. Bye. My power went out as soon as she said, "Look behind you," because it was stormy yesterday. No, and when I tell you, I was like looking around, like what the fuck? Like
0: I, I would never recover. I'd have to tell you we had to cancel an episode. <laughs> I'd be like, "Look, I, um, unless you're gonna watch the rest of this with me, we we're canceling." It. No, it was the most scared I was the entire movie. I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop shitting. Me. Anyway, <laughs> I had there I, again. There's things I like. I'm gonna get there she starts to be taunted. And after she's power went out, then her phone starts ringing again, and it's the security system operator. So we realized that Rose is never really on the phone with the operator because the phone rang and it's the real operator and that she had imagined that initial call. So again, we're starting to question Rose as a narrator, the line between reality and unreality is being blurred. Then her fiance, Trevor, returns home, finally, and Rose, in her conversation with Trevor, notices that mustache is missing. She goes outside to search for him, you know, wiggles around a bowl of food to try to get his attention, thinking he might have got out, but there's no luck
1: there's another instance of Trevor asking why she set the alarm. She says she forgot. And she, again, like tries to be very vulnerable. It goes on about her, how her head has been foggy, spacey. It's been a creepy place lately. There was an incident at work and her boss is making her take A dot dot dot. And then she just stops and apologizes and like everything's fine. And he's like you sure? And she says yes and he accepts it. Like if my partner is saying my boss is making me take A, I'd be like finish your fucking sentence right now. <laughs> your, your head is a creepy place. There was an incident at work. Like tell me me more we're spending the rest of our night unpacking this
0: and you're telling me that he's just oh you say you're fine i don't have to do anything else about that that is such a good point especially thinking about the word choice my head is a creepy place i feel like that is really intentional compared to what the norm might be which is my head is a hazy place or a bad space a confusing place like creepy
1: is concerning yes I wrote, I hate this man. Ask a fucking question. The only question he does ask is if he broke another glass. Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> fuck this guy. So we get a nightmare of Rose looking at her dead mom again. She wakes up and decides that she's going to use this time to be productive. So she listens to the audio of Laura's incident in the room when she took her own life. She thinks she hears something in the background whispering. And the first time she enhances the noise it's her name. And she goes and she's playing this piece of audio over and over and over. And she doesn't hear it the next couple times. But then there's a fucking ghost lady jump scare insidious style right next to her, which makes her start freaking out. She grabs a knife and is like waving it around. And Trevor's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And then we see Rose meeting with her therapist the next day
0: who remarks that she's surprised to see her. Yes. And this is Dr. Madeline Northcott. Rose explains that she's having hallucinations, but Dr. Madeline doesn't seem to think that Rose is exhibiting signs of psychosis. She even says that Rose seems very coherent and aware of herself. And she tries to attribute Rose's feelings toward her long-standing guilt over her mother's intentional overdose, which is, again, contextualizing that scene we've seen a couple times with Rose's mother lying dead in her bed. Rose asks for a script for antipsychosis medication, but Madeline denies this request and suggests that they resume their weekly meetings instead. So Rose leaves. It seems like it was a pretty defeating conversation. I think there wasn't really anything helpful in there for Rose. I mean, it is kind of nice that maybe she can start resuming these sessions, maybe address some trauma. It seems like, regardless of what she's experiencing now, she does have some residual trauma left over from her childhood. But again, it doesn't really seem like it gives Rose any relief for what she's currently experiencing with these strange supernatural events. Yeah, because she wants a prescription. Yeah, she wants a prescription.
1: She wants a prescription that she's not getting. Again, she's being told not to self-diagnose. Your mm-hmm. anxiety's never healed, which I imagine is also so frustrating when you feel as though you have like a core wound and something else goes bad in your life. And somebody's telling you like, oh, it's because of your childhood. And you're like, no, I feel like I'm past that. This is a new thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I understand how that could be leaning into that about how like not everything has to do with my mom. Like, I'm just frustrated. Can it be about something else and not about this big experience that I had that you're holding against me? or how it must feel for her.
0: Yes, and, and that makes me think too of Madeline telling her don't self-diagnose, but it's really like she would probably be qualified to do it, especially mm-hmm. if it's like her own feelings. Right. Rose heads to her nephew's birthday party. So this is the party for Jackson at Holly's house. Jackson is opening up his gifts and I literally wrote, Shay's going to have to talk about this part <laughs> <laughs> because I there were a couple parts in this movie where I decided I was going to listen and I wasn't going to watch. <laughs> and this is this is one of the parts buckle up Ugh. i'm, I'm lo- sorry are you okay handling I'm the burden on. of this scene no, I, I got it
1: okay I got okay it. i got it trigger warning for some animal cruelty stuff i like that before she even gets to the house party she's applying makeup and practicing smiling in the mirror to try to like cover up and of course that's like a big metaphor of the movie right like everyone's like smile because it covers up everything and yeah. people just tell you to smile and get past things Holly hands rose off to her friends who begin badgering her for advice because she's a therapist, which I imagine (laughs) it's funny that happens. Jackson goes to open the present, which she packed to be a model train. And guess who went missing halfway through the movie? And guess who is found now? Mustache. It's Mustache. Mustache is in the box. Mustache is dead. Chaos ensues. She's crying that it wasn't her. They have to believe her. And as she's freaking out, crying, holding Mustache's dead body to her chest, she sees a woman from the party smiling at her. She screams, you guys have to see her, tell her to leave me alone. And as she's trying to like get away from this woman that's smiling at her, who keeps progressively getting closer to her, she falls through a glass table, and there is now broken glass covering her arms and many, many lacerations. And she is screaming, and I wrote, this chick can act. Like, I believe her. And the next time we see her, she is staring frozen at a pain assessment tool on the wall of the hospital, focusing on the zero, no pain portion of the scale, which has a big smiling face on it. Dr. Desai enters being like, I heard you were admitted. What the fuck happened? I heard you had an anxiety attack. Are you seeing somebody professionally? But she's really not listening to him. Instead, she's watching Holly scream at Trevor in the hallway.
0: This scene was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Yeah. But then I did. I really don't think any other part in the movie gets worse than that cat hugging scene in the middle of the room for me. Yeah. It was so brutal. And I also think a turning point Like, I think the thing about animals in horror movies or animal cruelty in film, it's like you're watching something completely innocent experience brutality and i think like her losing her innocent fluffy little cat that brings her joy and kind of really being on her own to face her fiance that's not as emotionally available as she would really need or to deal with her sister who does not know how to react to the scene in the middle of the room and the embarrassment of what happened at her nephew's party like i feel like her clutching that cat to her chest is the most intense loss she experiences in this movie I think it's like the first physical proof that she doesn't have
1: a grip on reality because she would have had to pack that box.
0: Yep. And then who killed the cat? You know what I mean? Is it the entity working through her? Is it something that happened outside of her physicality? Know. Was the ghost lady mustache meowing next to her and she had a knife?
1: I don't know. I don't know. <gasps> I'm trying to think what, it could have,
0: what could have been the external stimuli that she yeah. was reacting to, you know? Yeah. But anyway, that night, Trevor and Rose make it home from the hospital, and this is kind of where we have our first confrontation between the couple, where Rose is trying to explain to Trevor that what happened was not her. She did not do that. But Trevor thinks that Rose sounds crazy. He tells her that. He accuses Rose, even, of inheriting mental illness from her mother, and his dialogue also suggests that he believes that she is, in fact, the one that killed their cat.
1: Yeah, we see a lot of avoidant behavior from him saying, I can't fucking do this right now, trying to get out of the car and walk away. That's when he says it's genetic. You can inherit it from a parent. I looked it up. She asked, why would he look it up? And he says, because I wanted to know what I was potentially hitching my entire life to. Is that so fucking unfair? And I think that's interesting because I think we're supposed to
0: read him for being an asshole for that, but I don't know that he is. I mean, I don't think he is. It's not the most compassionate approach. Exactly. Like, I think that's the kind of thing that, yeah, like, you'd be in that ER waiting room, like, Googling the shit out of whatever. But also, he's still her fiancé. You know, how are you going to handle this situation to try to be a caretaker, even though you might be dealing with your own questions, right? Like, it's realistic to
1: want to know that not everything's going to be ideal all the time. What does this look like when it is bad? But it's also like, well, I don't want to, like, hitch my life to something like this. You know what I mean? It can be read both ways. Later that night, Trevor is sleeping on the couch. As Rose looks on, she climbs into bed, and I noted the placement of the wounds on her arms certainly could be interpreted as self-harm wounds.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So even if people who weren't at the party didn't see it happen, would she be believed that she fell through a glass table and not that she wasn't hurting herself? But she Googles the professor that was involved in Lara's incident, and she hears a noise beyond the open door of her bedroom, whispering, come here.
0: Ah. Oh. Mm -hmm. i just got chills i just oh the whispers
1: she closes her laptop and tries to lay down to sleep but instead she hears the voice of her mother calling her name and crying rose mommy made a mistake and she sees a figure from the doorway watching her and then her mother screaming her name transports us into the next scene
0: and in this scene rose goes out on her own to visit laura's professor's widow named victoria Rose knocks on Victoria's door. She says that she is a reporter, gets inside. Victoria starts talking to her. Because again, Victoria lost her husband only, what, 10 days prior? This is all happening in a very close string of events. So Victoria has only been dealing with this loss for about 10 days. She's talking to Rose and explaining that her husband, Gabriel, before he died, started scared. Sketching the entity that he believed he was seeing. So Victoria takes Rose into Gabriel's office and shows her all of the different sketches that Gabriel drew of this dark, scary figure, and even a sketch that you could tell was sort of macabre in its own way, but that Victoria pointed to as Gabriel's brother that he watched die. 20 years prior. So we're seeing kind of similarities between, again, not only like Laura killing herself in front of somebody after witnessing somebody do the same thing, but also these people are starting to show that they have their own traumatized history beyond what happened. Apparently, Gabriel started ranting about some kind of curse after attending a conference where he saw a woman kill herself in front of him. So we are seeing a chain of events definitely emerge here. And Rose asks for the woman's name that Gabriel saw at the conference. But Victoria, you know, after questioning why, sort of picking up on some of Rose's red flags, ends up kicking Rose out of her house once she gets the sense that Rose is not a reporter or might not be mentally sound. And also when she starts insisting that Gabriel was telling the truth about the quote unquote curse. So she is kicked out of there.
1: Saying, what are you, a fucking nutcase? some kind of morbid fanatic how fucking dare you so again like this language being a through thread so rose goes to visit hmm joel it's about time this man
0: came back into this i
1: i i was missing him it was a long
0: run without him i
1: I thought it was cute that she like plays with her hair before she like knocks on his door i was like (laughs) oh yeah
0: oh yeah this is where i wrote joel's apartment is a hot guy apartment say more Okay, yes, I will. So it's like a one bedroom, you know, open concept living room, kitchen, like your standard apartment, but it's like very intentionally decorated. First thing I noticed was the soap dish. <laughs> I thought it was very impressive he had a soap dish on his kitchen sink. It's very clean, organized, intentional. I don't know. I just I really liked it for him. It also seemed like it had like its own artistic flair, like he has taste, things that he wanted to have in his space.
1: Rose tells Joel about the professor and needs to know if he was involved in any other accidents before his death. Joel begrudgingly agrees and finds another incident report from a week prior, which is proving the story that Victoria told Rose. So he witnessed a woman committing suicide at a conference named Angela Powell. The crime scene photos are horrific. It looks like she gouged her eyes out in an elevator rose is like okay now i need you to repeat this search on angela and he's like this is my takeoff. off what are you doing <laughs> but she's like i need your help and i'm like he's way too okay fine about breaking the fucking law like he's just using all of the weapons of his disposal to like give her the information that she needs but whatever They also find out that she witnessed a suicide about four days prior. So Joel notes the weird coincidence that she was also a witness to a suicide. And Rose makes him click on the security footage where we see a man at a gas station approach Angela in a parking lot, take a pair of hedge trimmers from a nearby truck, and impale himself in the chest in front of her. And when they rewind the footage, we see that the man was smiling.
0: I like the video footage edition because it shows Joel, like somebody outside of this quote unquote curse, a physical representation of this and makes it real, mm-hmm. like a tangible event that even he can see. I also like that he does anything Rose says because I think it shows that he's still very much in love with her. Oh, yes. So after this meeting with Joel, Rose is able to print out a bunch of things that they found on their searches. She returns home and finds that Trevor has called Madeline for an intervention. Rose is very upset by this. She feels betrayed and storms out, taking the files that she copied from Joel's with her to her sister Holly. This is where we get some of that language very plainly said
1: about Trevor saying that you're just trying to make it so you don't have to be the one to deal with me. You're fine as long as everything is easy and agreeable, but God forbid anything become a tiny bit difficult and you just think how it's going to fuck up your whole little life plan. So again, showing that Trevor just really doesn't actually want to sit with her in what she's going through. He just wants her to be okay again. He wants things to go back to his level of normal. So Rose visits Holly and begs her to talk to her. And again, like the language that Rose is saying, we understand, but from an outside perspective, certainly sound like somebody who is not in the right state of mind saying, my eyes are open now. I've been cursed and I'm wrapped up in it. And it's like, oh, okay. This is obviously somebody who sounds like they are experiencing some level of delusion and, you know, is throwing crime scene photos at Holly. And she's like, you traumatized my son. This is exactly what happened to mom. You sound just like her. Mm. And this, I think is a really cool and meaningful conversation. Rose is like, how would you know what happened to mom? You never were around when she got bad. You left me there. Where the fuck were you when she died? But Holly defends her decision to leave the house, saying that because I was older, I got the brunt of it for a long time, but I had to leave the house to survive. I'm sorry that I left you there, but I've tried to move on. Rose let it to find her entire life, and now she's punishing Holly because Holly doesn't want it to.
0: Holly's got some points. Yeah, Holly kind of showed up in this conversation. I think before we saw her as maybe like a surface level sort of character, but here it seems like it gives her depth and a sense of an intentional process that she's chosen to deal with the trauma of her childhood. Yeah, but Rose buries the hatch deep in her back saying,
1: well, at least I'm helping and not being a smug stay at home PTA housewife.
0: Yeah. And on that note, Holly shuts the door in Rose's face. And as Rose sits in her car, screaming and crying and shaking the wheel, (laughs) we see Holly come back outside and walk towards the car. And then (laughs) there's a jump scare where we see Holly stop in front of the car, but then her head swings down and scares the shit out of Rose. Like, it's a very scary jump scare. It, it, like, really got me. It literally is almost
1: like Holly's head is the head of a jack-in-the-box on a slinky. And just kind of, like,
0: snakes down, very upside down and weird looking. And you can tell it's not, like, proportionate to Holly's actual head. You can tell it's a mannequin head, but it was so unexpected, so it's really effective.
1: And I also like that we see Jackson, the little boy, witnessing Rose's meltdown from the window, which I think is trying to say something about experiencing someone else's trauma can be traumatizing Mm. which is exactly what happened with rose and her mother she saw her battling mental illness and that obviously put a very big imprint on the direction of her life and is this suggesting that what's going to happen to jackson that he opened a dead cat at his birthday party and now is like seeing his aunt be very disturbed and
0: he's gonna like internalize that somehow i'm not sure that is a good question about kind of where jackson fits into all this But that night, Rose is at home eating some, oh no, she's not at home. She's in a parking lot eating some snacks. (laughs) When Joel calls with an update, he's been continuing their research and has found that there has been a chain of 20 similar cases involving witnesses to 19 suicides. There is one exception, which Rose picks up on right away. She's saying, what, 20 links in this chain, only 19 deaths? She learns from Joel that there was a survivor named Robert Talley who watched his business partner take his own life, but then later ended up randomly killing a total stranger. So he did not take his own life. He killed somebody else and is now in prison. But then the witness to the
1: murder also ended up taking their own life, which resumed the pattern. Yes. So they drive to Altoona, which is where Robert Talley is being held, and Joel gets his cop connections to grant them an interview, like a 10-minute interview with them under the presumption that Rose, a psychiatrist, is creating a criminal profile on Joel's behalf and they need to talk to Robert Talley specifically for it. On the way, Rose is explaining everything that she knows up until this point with Joel, and we're kind of seeing Joel's reaction, and I appreciate it that he's bewildered, but doesn't dismiss her. He gives her room, which, again, is that antithesis to how Trevor's been treating her the entire movie. Joel reports that none of the victims in the chain survived longer than a week, some not even four days, and Rose reports, today was my fourth day.
0: This is giving the ring. Mm-hmm. The cycle, the four-day-to-a-week period, right on brand. Again, we get some more forest dialogue saying that Robert Talley is a whole box of Fruit Loops. Good luck. <laughs> At least they didn't say nutcase for the eighth time. At least we got a little bit of creativity in there. <laughs> I know. Got some cereal, not just some yeah. loom's. But with Joel present in the interview with Tally, he says he won't talk. So Rose asks Joel to step outside, which he does begrudgingly. But again, he loves Rose, so he's going to do anything she says. Mm -hmm. This is when Tally finally gives some real information about how he survived. He says that the entity is some kind of monster that feeds on trauma, and the only way to break the curse's chain is to kill someone else. But there has to be a witness to that murder because the entity, again, needs trauma to continue surviving. This whole time, Rose has been asking these questions under the guise of a psychiatrist asking questions on behalf of her patient. But after hearing that she would need to kill somebody else to survive herself, she becomes very upset and says, I can't kill someone, which clues Tally into the fact that she is currently infected, which he starts to panic from because he doesn't want to be reinfected by Rose. So he starts yelling, screaming, threatening her, telling her to leave. And then Rose is escorted out as Tally is escorted away from other police officers.
1: Joel presses Rose for an answer on what happened in there, and she very dismissively claims he's just out of his fucking mind, which I noted was the first time she used dismissive language. Maybe because she's picked up on the fact that it seems to be enough for everyone else to dismiss things. I know. So later she arrives home. She sees a call from her therapist but ignores it. And as she's pouring over some more crime scene photos at her dining room table, she gets a message from Trevor saying they need to talk. She ignores that as well. She makes her finger bleed from biting. Oh, similar two weeks in a row. Ew. And as she's washing it off, she looks at her knife block and she goes to reach for one and she kind of like stops herself. But you can tell she's kind of being compelled to like pick a knife up. But she's interrupted by a knock on the door and it's her therapist. She hurriedly hides the photos and answers the door where her therapist apologizes for the day before, but says that she has an obligation to report Rose if she's a danger to herself or others, and she's going to need to convince her that she's not. She lets her in. They talk on the couch. The therapist asks Rose about the mention of evil beings, and Rose is trying to rationalize it, saying, I confided in Trevor in a moment of panic. I feel better about it now. I just wasn't sleeping. Like, I'm cool. But then goes on to list off all of the like bad circumstances that she's dealing with right now. So she feels as though she's reacting appropriately to all the things that are happening. But then her phone rings and it's her therapist.
0: Her therapist is supposed to be sitting right in front of her. But her therapist is on the phone, which obviously clues Rose into the fact that this is a doppelganger of Madeline. This is not the real therapist. Upon realizing that Rose is on to the doppelganger, the doppelganger threatens Rose that it's almost time. Another thing with the ring. Yeah, seriously. So the scene ends with the therapist
1: holding Rose by the face very aggressively and roaring. It looks very alien, very non-human. But then Rose comes to in the parking lot of the hospital. She sees that there's a knife in her passenger seat, and she slips it into her sleeve, keys into the hospital, and walks by the nurse's station. She's questioned, but she claims she's just grabbing something from her office. But instead of going to her office, she enters Carl's room as he sits facing away from her on his bed. He turns slowly and recoils when he sees her. He's very fearful. He backs himself into a corner, screaming as she approaches him. She's trying to shush him, quiet him, calm him down. But of course, all of this ruckus alerts Dr. Desai, who comes running in asking what Rose is doing here. She says that she doesn't know, but then she takes the knife out and begins stabbing Carl repeatedly in the chest as he smiles at her and eggs her on. And Dr. Desai screams in horror, and we're kind of seeing, okay, is she fulfilling the prophecy? She's trying to make Dr. Desai be the witness to something horrible, just as Robert Talley said. But then, as Dr. Desai is holding the sides of his head screaming, he
0: uh, rips his face off. Tight, And then Rose comes to again in the parking lot with the knife and we realize she imagined the whole scenario. But it freaks her out imagining going through with something like that. And as she's trying to get her bearings, we see the real Dr. Desai approach her vehicle and say, what are you doing here? I see you out here. What's going on? Rose tries to avoid the conversation, but we see Dr. Desai see the knife in the passenger seat. So he tries to encourage Rose to stay. He obviously is afraid that she is a danger to herself or others, but Rose quickly drives away before Desai can really do anything to help her. Then cut to Joel calling Rose and saying there's an APB out for her (laughs) based on her encounter with Dr. Desai at the hospital, which by the way, an APB stands for all points bulletin. I thought that would be fun to have. I wrote ABV. Oh, oh like I was thinking of beer. I'm just oh, like, <laughs> no, no, there's a beer for you, Rose. Come on <laughs> over. Know, right? But Rose responds that she will confront the entity and she wants to be alone when she does it. So there are no witnesses that can inherit the curse. Even though Joel is up to speed on everything, it, it seems very cryptic for him to try to understand. He tries to get more information out of her, maybe where she's going, but she doesn't give it to him. She arrives at the house in the woods. It's
1: aging, falling apart, and as she gets out of the car and continues to stare at it, the camera pans to her phone that has been left in the car as Joel desperately tries to call her again and again. She approaches the house and keys in, and from some of the context clues, including height marks on the wall with her names on them... This is her childhood home. And I wrote, another house left empty in this market? Nah, not two weeks in a row. <laughs> because the house in Oculus was like, and that house was nice. That house was left vacant for like, what, 10 years? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, not in this market. Mm-hmm. Be like, ghost? Are you going to pay rent? Extra <laughs> tenant? No, no. No. So she's walking through the house and stares at a closed door, the door, and as she opens it, the creepy lullaby music from the opening shot resumes. She sees her mother in bed calling for her. And it's a little bit more of an extended scene where we see Rose's mother crying, asking for help, saying, mommy made a mistake, get the phone, call for help, like actually giving her instructions, not just a vague mommy made a mistake. This seems to be more of like, I need your help and I need you to do something for me. But baby Rose, who is now standing in adult Rose's place, shakes her head no and runs away when mom begins screaming her name. So this is really spelling out that Rose does feel a sense of responsibility because she was directly asked for help and denied. Or couldn't do that. I mean, she was a kid. No one blames her, but she certainly blames herself. So adult Rose goes searching around the garage for light. She finds a lantern. She kind of just like sits and waits. And she hears creaking and then sobbing. She sees a figure crying in her mother's room. It looks like her mother as Rose remembers her. This is another play with time where it's her mother at the age in which she died. And Rose is an adult talking with one another. She stands and tries to beckon Rose toward her, saying, I'm so sorry. I haven't been a good mom. I want to be. I really try to be. But sometimes everything is too much. There's something terrible inside of me. I hate myself. Are you ashamed of me? When Rose says no, she says, then why did you let me die? Why didn't you save me? She keeps saying, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And she's like, well, you wish that I would die. And Rose said, because I was afraid of you. I was 10 years old. You were a monster. It's not fair. You needed help, but I couldn't. I have carried that guilt for my entire life, but I have to let it go. This isn't real. The mother smiles and says, but Rose, your mind makes it real. Your mind is so inviting. Mm. And then mom from *Barbarian* and guy from It Follows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Big lanky lady monster.
0: Great. My favorite thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So lanky lady monster, all of a sudden in her former mother's place, begins attacking Rose but Rose is able to set the creature on fire using the oil lantern that she had with her for light. As the creature burns, she escapes outside and the entire house goes up in flames. So she drives away and immediately goes to Joel's apartment and apologizes to him for involving him in the whole situation and also for not being emotionally available during their relationship. She basically explains they were getting close and she was scared anyway ended up fucking off from the relationship as a result she asks him if he'll stay with her while she sleeps which is so beautifully intimate and he agrees but then the room gets dark and he smiles and laughs saying that he'll stay with her forever <laughs> oh my god shay is like i love this ominous smile and laugh <laughs> he can giggle at me whenever he wants <laughs> but this of course is not meant to be kinky or cute no nope. because it's saying that rose is still very much in the house yes and as she turns to leave joel's apartment when she runs outside She is transported back to the house where she runs outside. She's in the front yard of the house now looking back to see a completely intact house. There was no fire. There was no final confrontation with the monster. She is alone and still cursed. But then real Joel arrives on the scene, but she's freaked out. She doesn't trust Joel at this
1: point. So she baddens the hatches and runs back in the house, barricading herself inside. He's trying to break in as the tall lady approaches her and screams, The lady then takes her jaw and rips her face open, and it kind of just looks like a little vortex of teeth. Cool, fine. It kind of looks like, what the fuck is it called in it? The lights or something like that. I forget. But either way, it kind of looks like a little portal
0: type situation. (laughs) A little little portal, a little portal situation.
1: But then as Rose is screaming, her scream freezes in place, and then the mama monster grabs her face and starts climbing inside her mouth. Like, starts sticking her head inside of Rose's mouth, which I understand is supposed to be, like, a possession-type thing, and it just kind of looks stupid. (laughs) (sighs) It's almost over. It's almost over. It's kind of
0: camp. That part feels camp. It's supposed to be terrifying. Mm.
1: And while the monster is like, okay, you ripped your face off. Cool. Joel finally breaks in, is looking around for Rose, but then he finds her standing with an empty can over her head. It's propane. She turns, is holding a box of matches, puts on a big smile lights the match and we only see as joel watches rose die in the light of his eyes the reflection of his eyes rose lights herself up and he is frozen in place and we can tell that whatever it is is being passed
0: on to him and then the movie ends with lollipop playing <sighs> which is very barbarian like that it is that be my baby yeah Just be my baby yeah yeah mm-hmm. So that's the movie. Okay, so let's get into some post-plot stuff. So I was telling Shay before we recorded that I was surprised that I didn't find more on this, but I did find a lot of film reviews A lot of people in like college newspapers (laughs) having a conversation about this film, which I thought was, you know what, as far as a conversation goes, you know, I still think we can use it for this podcast. So I have a part of a film review by Xandra Button from The Gaudi, which is a Scottish student newspaper. And Button writes, quote, if you watch Smile only expecting a horror movie, you may be surprised by what you get. When analyzing this movie, it becomes less about a demonic smiling creature and more about Rose's inability to cope with the horrible trauma she has experienced in her life. In fact, the demonic entity tells Rose that it has attached itself to her because she has been traumatized. Later, Rose discovers that she can rid herself of the smiling curse if she passes her trauma onto another person. It is not hard from here to see how smile works as a metaphor. The smiling creature is not just a horror movie gimmick, but a representation of how trauma can be passed from one person to another, and how, if you don't seek help dealing with these traumatic memories, your life can begin to unravel. Thinking of the movie in this way, Rose becomes not just a victim of a disturbing curse, but a symbol of what can happen if you do not seek help during a psychotic episode. I'm saying that just has like a nice little summary of what we're seeing at work here in this movie symbolically. And I like that premise. I like the idea of unchecked cyclical trauma wreaking havoc on folks or many folks. We've seen it before in films like The Babadook when Amelia was struggling to cope with her husband's death. And it follows with the invisible STC, the sexually transmitted curse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> STD, sexually transmitted demon. <laughs> yeah, that's right, STD.
0: And we've seen that before. Even though those movies tend to be some of the more emotionally taxing movies we watch for this podcast, I still think they have been really interesting to watch and see, like, how that idea of mental illness is explored as a horrific element. But Button and other film reviewers point out some of the issues with the film's execution. So Button continues in her article, Throughout the movie, characters use therapy buzzwords and often suggest that Rose's mental state is a result of her genetics and past trauma. While Smile may have had good intentions in trying to depict a taboo topic, the execution of this idea is poor. The movie equates mental illness with an inescapable monster. This is problematic because when someone who suffers from psychosis or paranoia may always be mentally ill, that does not mean that they must always live in fear or isolation as Rose does. It is harmful of Smile to suggest that mental illness is something that only gets worse over time, from which there is no escape. Smile also misses the mark metaphorically, because the audience is aware that the smiling creature following Rose is real. This means that Rose is not having a genuine psychotic episode, but that her would-be delusions are actually factual beliefs, which creates many problems in the film. For example, in one scene, Rose refuses to go to therapy because she knows her therapist won't believe that a monster is following her. Rose is obviously right for refusing therapy because the smiling creature could take the form of the therapist and cause Rose harm, which she does. However, if the movie wanted to be a metaphor, Rose should have been able to save herself by talking to a therapist, taking medication, and recognizing her delusions. Smile creates similar paradoxes throughout the film. That makes me think, too, of the moment where we see Joel see the smiling man in the security footage. Like, again, what could have been a question mark the whole time regarding Rose's reliability became actualized. Like, this isn't psychosis in its truest form. Like, this is actually something preying on her.
1: I think it would be better to settle the metaphor if we had seen Rose in the beginning a little bit more impacted presently by what happened to her mother. Cause of course we see her in a like a helping profession and working a lot, but I don't think that's supposed to set the groundwork that she isn't healed or that she hasn't gotten past it. And granted, like triggers can do a lot to unearth a lot of things that have been buried. Like I think of the ending of Malignant where she's like, it's my body, it's my body and takes agent. See back, but it's clear through malignant that she doesn't have agency of her body. But like with Rose, she seems to have an idea of what is impacting her. And if you had taken away the Robert Talley storyline and just had never said the word trauma. Again, it would be the show, not tell. Like we mm. could, we could have inferred that we're smart. Like it's treating us like we're dumb, and they have to like <laughs> they have to like lay the candies for us to follow. Be like, hey, we know trauma sometimes hurts, and, that- <laughs> and like trauma can get passed on. Like, why don't we just keep saying trauma over and over again? But no, but then we have a character being like, it needs trauma to feed. I'm like, we could have figured that out. You're treating us like we're stupid, and yeah. that's what makes it feel lazy to me. Yeah, because it'd be one thing if they stuck to it, but this author, you know, very rightly points that
0: out. I don't know. It's just, I know what you mean. Like, I'm thinking about that moment with Gabriel Munoz, you know, when we learned that he had a brother that died 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, that would have been a moment that could showcase maybe there's this other through thread with these victims where they were already in- carrying their own trauma before they were re-traumatized with the horrific event that they experienced. It's not
1: really related in the same way, but it kind of makes me think of a haunting in Connecticut where it's like no one else can see the ghost because you're not close to death. Like Mm. I would have liked to see other people around like not be impacted by it because like you're only going to be spreading it if you had this core trauma. But there are other people around who witnessed a bad thing happen that did the right thing, quote unquote, according to this author and did seek treatment but we're seeing Rose's own decisions of avoidance feeding into the continual persecution of this smiling thing. I love that idea. Yes. And again, that's not to say that like you could live an entire life that's mostly charmed and have one really bad thing happen to you later in life, and it can undo a lot of things. That's not to say that you have to have a childhood core wound in order to be triggered. Like That's not what I'm saying at all. For the sake of this metaphor to work, it presumes that everybody has something that they are avoiding. Yeah. Which could be true. The human condition, we don't always tell the truths to ourselves. But let's see what happens when someone's well-adjusted. If you're going to sit here and suggest that because Rose overworks herself that she's not well-adjusted, when that is
0: just being a doctor. I don't know. I don't know what you're trying to say. Kind of piggybacking off of that, it does bother me that there's no clear way to vanquish this monster. And especially because there are so many similarities between this film and It Follows. I was thinking about the way It Follows ends, and I was kind of comparing them, which I know we shouldn't always do because these are separate films with their own separate thing. But I know that It Follows ends with that vague conclusion as well, but I don't remember it bothering me. Like, I remember this film bothering me, and I was thinking, like, I wonder if it's because this film almost does more to identify what the monster is It literally names it like a trauma monster that feeds on trauma. But by identifying it, it doesn't quite make sense why there isn't a way to beat it. But It Follows, I think, has more of this ambiguous note after your favorite pull scene ever. Mm. Like there is kind of a question mark. Did they actually succeed in beating the entity or is the entity still there? So like I feel like It Follows ends with this question mark. And there was always a question mark around what the entity even was. And this film ends on that cyclical note, but with all the identifying that they did as to what the monster was and even like the fake out conclusion, it just felt like it didn't really quite make sense that's the thing that's why i said earlier like it didn't feel satisfying because
1: i mean trust me look at the night house look at babadook the Mm -hmm. way they end those things are still very much there i'm not saying it has to be a happy ending because at the end of the babadook we see amelia going down and like feeding the grief yeah you know doing (laughs) all those things and like it scares her but she's able to keep it at bay because she's able to identify what it is and same with is her name maddie at at the night house i forget her name i think so but like at the end of the night house you know there's a ripple in the water and you see those types of of things. And there's always an awareness, but there is an agency that's given back to that character to make a choice as to how they're going to navigate it moving forward. Even Maddie at the end of Malignant, even though that's not necessarily like the same premise. Mm -hmm. And granted, I understand that the ending of this movie, when we see Rose going through all of these things and still not get the happy ending and still like losing to her illness, quote unquote, is kind of supposed to say like, you can do all the things right. You can try to face your trauma. And sometimes like you just lose the battle and it gets the worst of you. I understand it could maybe try to be tackling that, but it just
0: felt bleak for no fucking reason. That's something I thought about too. I was like, I think this movie is trying to play into the inherent fear that anybody going through trauma might not be able to get through their trauma or might not be able to maintain it or care for it or get on the other side of it in some kind of productive way, which I think as a scare factor, like does contribute to the scariness of this film, I think. That bleakness is scary. And that is a real fear that a lot of people likely have when they're going through something. What if it never gets better? But I don't know if it really functioned in that way. And this fear
1: of, am I only here to hurt other people? Mm. Like, I'm going to pass this thing on to Joel who did nothing but love me. Mm -hmm. And I did nothing but push him away and do all of these types of things. And now I'm re-traumatizing him and I'm burdening him with this curse. This article is like, it's painting it as a big bad monster that only gets worse over time. So are people supposed to be walking away from this who have felt suicidal ideation or who have felt all of these things thinking that my only role here is to be good and when I'm not good, I'm just hurting other people and passing on something that I couldn't vanquish? I don't know. And granted, like horror movies don't have to have happy endings. I just don't know what this is coming away with. And it's allowed to be ambiguous, but I just don't know that it's successful in, like,
0: having a stance. Right. I wonder if I would feel differently about this movie if I saw it before I saw other films, like It Follows, Mm -hmm. The Babadook, those other films that deal with similar subject matter. But then again, I also thought the idea of The Smiling maybe could have been used more intentionally. I mean, I'm not here to give notes for this movie, obviously. I thought it was very effective as far as being scary goes. I had to take a couple breaks while I was watching it because it really loads on that fear or that discomfort. But yes, to echo what you said, I was left kind of wondering like what the takeaway really was. Because even though the film ends with a very bleak continuation of that cycle, there was also so much in the movie where we got to see Rose be resilient and resourceful, and also moments where she confronted demons and apologized to people that she was afraid that she had hurt. But then those moments weren't even real. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like she never did actually get to tell Joel that she was sorry or what she felt. And she never did get to ask him, can I sleep here? Can you watch me while I sleep? You know, like we didn't get to actually have those moments actualized. And that kind of sucks. I wanted them to be real. And I also think
1: that the movie puts a lot of blame on Trevor and Holly, for example, for putting space between her illness and their wellness. And I think perhaps the movie was trying to say like Joel stuck by her. And if she had had a bigger support system or if people didn't run away when they saw the scary mental illness, that she could have been better. But I look at Holly and Trevor's choices that were informed by what they were seeing. Like she's killing a cat. She's putting it in a box and giving it to my my son and traumatizing my son. she is not taking care of herself. she is not accepting help when it's offered to her. she is showing up unannounced, she is being frantic. she is disrupting our lives. There is such a thing as unconditional love, but at the same time, there's also only so much you can do for someone who is unable to see where they are, and putting distance between you and somebody who is impacting your wellness shouldn't be a selfish decision or Mm -hmm. seen as a selfish decision, but I think this movie frames them as those are the people that didn't stick by her, and Joel is the hero, but he's the one who has to like pay the ultimate price at the end. I understand that it's trying to frame it as people shy away from mental health, and I get it, especially with these very, like, lazily thrown one-liners in here about nutcases and fruit Loops and whatever. But it's like, I don't see anything really that wrong with anything these other characters decided to do. I think they were doing the thing that they could do, and the thing that a lot of us have to do in putting boundaries between ourselves and people in our lives that are hurting us. And I don't think that's a bad thing, so I don't know. I just...
0: Yeah. It wasn't my favorite. Yeah. And especially hearing what you're saying, like, Trevor got the therapist come over. Yeah. And Rose's overseer at the hospital tried to talk to her. So, like, there were people in, like, real positions that you would want to enlist help from in a situation like this, trying to give help. And it still wasn't working. And she did give a dead cat to her nephew on his birthday, which is a big <laughs> red flag. <laughs> But anyway, this movie has been requested before. It seemed like it really took the internet by storm for a lot of different reasons. And we wanted to cover it because this is going to be our last movie that we talk about in 2023.
1: Yeah, we usually take December or at least parts of December off just to rest, rejuvenate, catch up on some of the things that we haven't been able to watch this year (laughs) because we've been watching all of the things for all of this awesome coverage. But we're going to be back bigger, better than ever in January with some appropriately themed movies. But in the meantime, keep an eye out on social media. We plan on doing some fun things to recount the year that we've had. It was our biggest and best year yet. So we're just very grateful that you're here.
0: Yes. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Instagram at the Horrors Podcast, or feel free to reach out on Gmail at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah,
1: let us know what you want us to cover because yes. we are building next year's schedule and we are all ears.
0: You know us. We like to try things. We like to take requests. We're always so happy to hear from you.
1: Until next year. <gasps> We're the horrors. Bye. Bye.